0: Ah, yes. Hello. Hello, everyone. This is Matt with the Curbsiders, and this week we have two great episodes on addiction medicine with a particular focus on opioid use disorder and patients with chronic pain. The This is a, a topic that is really been a struggle for me in both clinic and on the hospital wards. So I think we got some great information from our two wonderful experts. Definitely some of the topics here are going to be controversial. We'd love to hear your feedback on how you're handling these situations when you see them. I hope you enjoy both of these wonderful episodes. The second one will come out on Friday. Thanks for listening.
1: for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. more the views that expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hostile and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you serve up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we wrong.
0: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. Hi. This is this is the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Mm. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my two co-hosts, Dr. Stuart uh, Schanberg. Brigham.
1: <laughs> <Yeah, it's, laughs>
0: I figured I had to inter- introduce
1: myself this time.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Paul Williams.
1: Well, How many these have we done? <laughs> a few. <laughs> hey, there was this awkward pause. I wasn't sure because we keep going. Fastball. He changes the outro every time.
0: Uh, I've trying to keep it fresh for the audience. Excellent. All right, guys. Paul, did you have a pick of the week?
2: Yeah, yeah I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, in keeping with my habit of doing things I love until I hate them, I actually, I just, this is not the pick. I just read the entire Dark Tower series by Stephen King, which is seven Bible length novels. <laughs> and if I never read another word of Stephen King again, I'll die a happy human being. And he's fine. Like I'm, it's I. I used to like him, but I just don't don't do that. Um, so that was apropos of nothing. So now I'm trying to recover from that and actually rush it back up on my classics. So I'm reading Moby Dick right now. I'll report back if that's going to be a pick or not. Wonderful. But, I will. Uh,
1: wa- I will uh, one up you, Paul. I'm going to recommend, know. uh, it's a, it's a fantasy book series. It's called the wheel of time series. It's like it's 14 or 15 Bible sized books. I've read all of them.
2: Great. Yes. I know. <laughs> That'll be Can't the next, it. my next step in self-flagellation. But I, <laughs> I, I think the pick I'm going to um, make this week for, for no one to look at will be actually, um, a collection of T.S. Eliot poems. So I don't know. Everyone knows quotes by T.S. Eliot, but, uh, the one poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Proofrock, is probably my favorite piece of American literature. Um hopefully he's American, otherwise I look foolish. But how about we say English language? <laughs> and it's it's one of my favorite things I think that I've ever read, but it's all of his works have quotes that you've heard. Um so I'm gonna recommend the collected works of T. S. Eliot, specifically The Wasteland, Proofrock and Other Observations is a nice book that actually has some good annotations. So read some poetry, class yourself up a little bit.
0: Wonderful. And my pick of the week will be very quick. It is another podcast, a an internal medicine podcast. Actually, it's the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast by Gil Peratt. And he did a recent episode, which relates to this episode we're doing now, on urine drug screens, false positive urine drug screens, and some of the stigmatization that that can cause for patients and some of the conflict that can cause between you and the patient. And he talks about what can cause false positives. It's about a 20 minute listen. It's, it's, it's good. I, I recommend it. So check that out. Excellent. All right. This episode is on uh first of two episodes that we'll be doing on addiction medicine. Specifically, this one's focusing on opioid dependence and opioid therapy. It's a controversial topic and we had two great speakers, Dr. Stefan Curtis. He's a physician in internal medicine and addiction medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine and also at the Birmingham VA Medical Center. He grew up in California. He has a 20 year history of providing and research of providing and researching healthcare services for vulnerable populations. He leads a VA-funded research on homeless health care and housing. He serves on his hospital's opioid safety initiative and has written several articles for scholarly and lay press on problems in our current response to the opioid crisis with a focus on the harm to patients. He was recently invited to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services at an upcoming opioid summit. So he was invited there as an advisor. And Dr. A.J. Manhapra is the interpreter of maladies at Advanced Pact Pain Clinic at the VA Hampton Medical Center in Hampton, Virginia. He is an internist and ABAM Fellowship-trained addiction medicine specialist. He is a research scientist attached to the VA New England MIREC and Yale Department of Psychiatry. His clinical focus is on developing a cognitive paradigm for primary care physicians to conceptualize the problem of disabling chronic pain in individuals, especially those with complex dependence and addiction to various substances, The goal is to shift the high-quality treatment of complex pain to primary care because the current specialist-centered model is apparently not working, and he is a member of the local pain committee and pain team and was a member of the Virginia Governor's Task Force on Pain and Addiction Curriculum Development. He also teaches pain and addiction topics at the Eastern Virginia Medical School. We are so happy to feature both of these great speakers We talk about the treatment of chronic pain or acute pain with opioids. We talk about tapering off opioids for people who have been on them chronically, some of the controversy around the CDC guidelines, naloxone therapy, and some of the partial agonists like methadone and suboxone and how those can be used. It's a very informative discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did.
1: That's right, Matt. Hey, hey, Matt, you know what I heard about the opioid use epidemic?
0: What? What? It's at an all-time high. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we should just get started talking here. Obviously, Paul and Stuart are with me as always, and we have on the call with us here two guests, Dr. Stefan Cortez. Hello. And Dr. AJ Manhapra. Hi. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yep. Uh, AJ, I'll go to you first. If you had to describe yourself as a one-liner, what would that sound like?
3: Oh, just a curious internist. That's about it. <laughs>
0: okay, very brief.
3: That's that practically describes my entire career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Stefan, how about you?
4: Uh, I would say I'm an idealistic, obsessive, and slightly insecure uh, internist who's learned to live with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like it. Stuart, you've been on the show before. You. Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Uh, so, a- AJ, what's the best advice you ever received as a learner, or you, or you would give as a teacher?
3: So, this, this is a funny story. I met this met the guy who gave me the best advice in my life. It's not about learning or anything. And, like twenty five years later, and I asked him, "You do you remember me <laughs> giving <laughs> this advice?" He had no clue. <laughs> 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 so. The Advice, you know, I was I was at a uh, at a I was in India. I came from India, so I was making a decision whether I should come over here or not. It was a big move, right? So, and it was a lot of uncertainties at that time. So he gave me this fantastic piece of advice that uh, there are no good decisions or bad decisions. You just make informed decisions, and it turns out to be good or bad. Mm. So that that. That rather defines my medical practice, too. You know, I <laughs> I found that that to be rather useful uh, uh, advice in, in in any facets of life. But he doesn't remember giving that. <laughs> <Sure>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you should absolutely take ownership of that quote, then. That is now yours. If he doesn't yeah. remember it, it belongs to you.
1: Yes, exactly. Stefan, what about you? What's the best advice you ever received as a learner or gave as a teacher?
4: Um. <laughs> That's a hard one. I guess a couple of things come to mind if you're the ki- if you're like me and you're somewhat insecure about uh whether you're doing things well enough, the important thing is to realize we're all doing the best we can with what we have and uh the goal is to sort of maximize what you can accomplish with the tools you've been given uh, which are not infinite and you have to recognize your limitations.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's a good point and uh Something that that I've been trying to do lately is surround myself with people that have different skills, uh, different skills than I do, and just kind of r- recognizing where I where I have these limitations and trying to fill in those gaps by by learning from good people that are that have strengths that I don't. So, I, I like that advice.
2: Yeah, it's interesting how often this has come up. I feel like that's been a theme with the people that have seemed to be the best internists or. They also have to be really good at self-flagellation, and and are uh-huh. all kind of dealing with that. So I, I think that's excellent advice.
0: Have have either of you gentlemen? Uh, I'm going to do a reverse. I'm going to ask if you guys have read a book uh, that that kind of goes along. It's called Multipliers. Have you have you ever heard of it? It's from the business literature. <laughs>
3: I, nope. Nope. I I have that book on my shelf. I have not read it yet.
0: <laughs> I think you could probably, if you read the cover jacket, it probably gives you the gist of the book pretty well. But I, I, I've i said this before. I don't remember if I've said it on air. But basically, I think that medical school kind of breeds you to be like, to to show like, I'm the smartest one in the room, I can answer all the questions. But then, once you become an attending or once you're leading a team, that becomes kind of a toxic personality. And the book Multipliers is basically like you don't want to be the genius in the room, you want to be the person that brings genius out of other people. That's how you have a great team. I love that yeah. book. And I think every doctor should read it.
3: Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. Uh, you know, you, have you heard about Yuval Harari? No, I don't so think he's, so. He, he's this guy who writes about the uh, history of science, and he's a he's a kind of philosopher of science. So he has this uh, this very interesting quote. You know, the greatest discovery of mankind is the discovery of ignorance. Uh-huh. So I- ignorance allows you to you know to be curious about the rest of the world. So rest of the thing. So in in medicine, I have found that it. it, it you have to reach a certain level of career to say, oh, I don't know anything about that, right? And that is, knowing what you don't know is a pretty critical quality of an internist.
2: It's actually kind of liberating in a way to be able to say, I have no idea. Like it just, it feels kind of freeing when you get to that point. Yeah. So I feel very free much of the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I take Xanax. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what do you, what do you say we move on to the main topic, which is going to be addiction medicine? And, and I did want to mention that the, uh, the, a lot of the questions for this and setting up this interview was done by a medical student, Elena Gibson from University of Alabama and a a third year resident, Carolyn Chan, who is a resident. I'm not sure if she wants me to say where, but she's in, uh, she's in Ohio and in the primary care track and she helped write this. Uh, these questions and, and do a lot of the background research for this talk. So, thank you to them. And this case is one of, uh, is, is a case from Cashlack that's, uh, I guess, adapted from a real life patient, not one of mine. Mr. C is a 52 year old male. He has a history of hypertension, COPD, CKD, and a remote history of polysubstance use, cocaine, and heroin, but has maintained sobriety for over two years. So, now he's coming to clinic. He has, he's had right hip pain, but now it's substantially worse. Before, he was using occasional NSAIDs, maybe a few days of narcotics here and there, but now it's been worse, and an x-ray shows he has severe avascular necrosis of the hip related to chronic steroid use. The, the orthopedic surgeons are planning a total hip replacement in a month, but he needs to get by until then, and he's saying Tylenol doesn't work. He doesn't see a pain management doctor, so he wants you as the primary doctor to to manage his pain. So I think this is a pretty typical case for for us to see in primary care, somebody with unmanaged pain. Before we address the case, I wanted to go ahead and, and start defining some terms. So, Stefan, what would you say... If you had to define some of the terms related to like substance dependence, substance abuse, or hazardous use what what terms in a what are the simple terms that our audience should know
4: well there's use uh there's you, you know, hazardous use uh and uh, I guess dependence, and then uh substance use disorder so use is straightforward do they use something or not cigarettes alcohol, an illicit drug uh those are sort of straightforward. Uh hazardous or at-risk use is a little trickier. But with regard to alcohol, there are uh, identified thresholds, which I, which reflect somebody who might be more likely to have an adverse health outcome. With men, it's something like more than 14 drinks in a week or more than four drinks on an occasion. AJ can correct me if I got it wrong. It's a lower <laughs> oh, amount, if a, and it's a lower amount for women. But yeah. that has nothing to do with defining dependence or addiction Uh, It just is hazardous. And obviously, uh, drinking while driving, having equipment, for instance, might count as hazardous use. Mm -hmm. Then we get into, you know, there's no actual definition for hazardous use of uh, illicit drugs. Uh, Typically, we've just talked about uh, either dependence or substance use disorder or sometimes abuse. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dependence is somewhat straightforward in the following sense. Uh, Dependence means a person has... uh, problems if they stop using
3: addiction is compulsive use with loss of loss of control that is the that is the kind of colloquial definition of addiction so addiction in addiction the purpose of use disappears and it becomes an automatic behavior so the transition neurobiologically transition from a purposeful use with a with a repeated use you know Calling a, uh, creating a predicted pattern of use is dependence. When the purpose of use lost and in an automatic behavior, it becomes addiction. That's a kind of simplistic way of thinking about it. Yeah.
4: Can I, can I ask a quick question of my friend, AJ? Uh, AJ, would you want to draw a distinction between simple dependence, such as one might have for an SSRI or a beta blocker, where stopping it leads to an adverse consequence, uh, maybe simple dependence on an opioid, where the person's functioning well, uh, but it uh, ba- basically has tolerance and can't stop easily, but is otherwise not going to have a lot of compulsive behaviors, and something more like uh, complex dependence, which borders on addiction. How do you, how do you think and speak about that
3: level of dependence, if you will? So, it, but the addiction is is a. Is a continuum of things. It's it's not a static, it's not a bifurcation of d- definitions. Mm. It's a continuum. That's why we they change from you know dependence to substance use disorder, recognizing the end of the continuum. So substance use is the end of the continuum. You know, it's substance use disorder only when severe substance use disorder is quote unquote addiction. So complex so dependence it- is when dependence becomes problematic. So simple dependence, you know, you, you run an opioid, you stop, you have some withdrawals, and after a few days, you're well, right? In complex dependence, you know, you stop an opioid, you have withdrawals, but you are not well after that. It takes, you know, you, you continue to have significant pain, dysphoria, or, you know, sleep problems and all those, disability for weeks, months, and all those things. These are people... You know, you know, typically you see this after high-dose opioid tapers. And we do not recognize that enough, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense that people can have uh, complex dependence and it can be pretty disabling.
0: Well, for this gentleman, where would you go next? Uh, Stefan, I'll go to you for this. What What would you sort of, how would you start to have the conversation with this gentleman about what we're going to do for pain control? And then AJ will let you weigh in next.
4: A lot of what would happen for me is to understand how does he live today? What does he do today? Uh, What are the things he does each week? Does he go to social groups? Does he have a job? What are his relationships? What I'm trying to figure out is essentially how secure is the um, recovery and the life that he's established for himself and the investments he has. All of this becomes the context for understanding whether um, opioids as a possible intervention among many uh, for his continuing pain would pose uh, extremely high risk or just moderate risk. After that conversation about how the individual lives, how they're functioning in daily life, I would ask them about what they're doing for their pain currently. And I would certainly explore a variety of non-medication options that might assist them. Let's assume for sake of discussion that some have been tried and are not really helping that much. I then would want to learn when is the last time they've taken an opioid for pain, what impact did it have, and did it raise any concerns for you in regard to your recovery? And mm. you know, all this presupposes an open conversation and that I'm an interested partner, uh, not really an interrogator, even though, in a way, I am interrogating. Uh, so those, that's the kind of conversation I would have, is where are you at, what are you doing, what's your life like? And how did opioids work out the last time you took them?
1: Hmm. And what, what would be your, your go-to screening tool um, to, to screen for their risk for opioid use or substance use disorders, in this case, for opioids?
4: So, to a degree, I don't routinely uh, pull open a standardized screening tool. But the questions I ask are most closely related to something called the
3: two-item conjoint screen. Yeah. So, uh... The CDC guidelines have done a nice review of the utility of these tools for screening. And their general uh, conclusion was that it is not really helpful. So in in, in this patient, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is the concept. We are journalists. We we got to think through these things. So who are the people who are at risk of developing uh, opioid dependence or problematic dependence or addiction when they, when you start them on long-term opioids? So typically, there are, there are people with prior substance use disorder, prior mental health disorder, and m- multiple comorbidities, polypharmacy. So these are the four sets of things that typically leads to problematic opioid use. So mm-hmm. that is what I go by, you know, the uh, prior substance use disorder, active substance use disorder, mental health disorder, especially PTSD, polypharmacy and uh, multiple comorbidities. So say this, this patient raises some
2: red flags for you where I don't even want to frame it like that, but so some of the background factors raise concerns that maybe opioid use might be a bad choice for pain control. Can you maybe talk us through how you contextualize that conversation in a role of an advocate in sort of a non, non-confrontational, non-judgmental way? Because I feel like it's a very hard discussion to have without feeling like you're apportioning
3: some degree of blame. So there is some inherent risk with it. You just have to acknowledge the risk, right? And pull up your big boy pants, or, <laughs> <laughs> and prescribe opiate for this patient. But at the same time, have a discussion about this. You know, with the with the patient. Patient understands these things. People with substance use disorder understand these things. So you, you. The problem is that we you typically have these discussions after they get into trouble. And they, you know, they are, you know, two hundred um, mme of morphine, right? So these discussions have to happen right up front. You know, you have identified that this It's a very easy criteria: prior or active substance use or dependencies, uh, multi uh, multi morbidity, essentially psychiatric comorbidity, and polypharmacy. This essentially defines your problematic patients.
4: Yeah, he's at risk, but he's been, you know. My, let's assume that I don't have many other options. My goal is to come up with a way to successfully care for him, and it might well involve opioids that are monitored fairly closely with a fairly frank and open discussion about that. Um, I assume that there's going to have to be a closer level of relating and monitoring than I might do with somebody who has no such history. I agree.
0: And I I think what you're both saying is is kind of radical thinking in my mind and and but I I like what you're saying because I and and I want to start to talk about the CDC guidelines here but I think a lot of people would look at this patient and say up oh, prior history of opioid opioids can't treat their can't treat their pain with opioids no matter how severe and that patient would probably suffer and maybe be forced to get those medications in an unsafe way so I think what, what I'm hoping to gain from, from you all is like ways that we can safely do this and responsibly do this, because I think a lot of people with the new guidelines, which are, are, are so strict, have just sort of, and, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, have just kind of ridden off using opioids in patients that are higher risk.
3: So in this patient, when you start off these opioids, this is a starting an opioid, which is very different from continuing a long-term opioid, okay, which is two different things. Starting an opioid, you should you should clearly discuss the exit plan. So mm-hmm. if he's having in a one month uh, surgery, you should have you know you, if you you should very clearly tell him that you know we have to control your pain, but if you're on opioids, you're gonna have a risk of developing dependence and it might be difficult for you to get off. So you have to give him option of okay, can you manage this without opioids, okay? Then, if you start opioids, there should be a very clear exit plan. Mm -hmm. In the the sense that, okay, you're going to do the surgery. It takes six weeks of recovery. How are we going to plan the opioid therapy during those weeks? The first few weeks, you will need a lot of opioids. The second week, you know, in the the next two weeks, probably not that much. And third and fourth week, we'll taper it off. So So the expectation is already defined.
1: I've got somewhat of a practical question. Is, is there any difference in the specific opioids as far as their risk for addiction or dependence is concerned? Not really. Okay. Yeah.
4: No. you know, there's some statistical data that suggests overdose risk might be higher with long-acting opioids, but mm-hmm.
3: I am not 100% convinced. Yeah, that, you know, the, you go for the lowest dose that is effective. That, that is, that is, and, you know, and... You should give them the idea that it's not going to fully control his pain, especially in a patient like this who who typically substance use prior substance use disorder, patients have higher threshold you know lower thresholds for pain, and they have more pain and they require more opioids
0: now, the the CDC guidelines, I think some of the things they they said most patients only need for for acute pain. Only need about three days of pain medication. Most patients won't need more than seven days. And I think some of the useful things they did is highlight if patients taking more than 50 milligrams morphine equivalents, or if patient is also on benzos or patient has history of substance abuse, then those patients should get Narcan, which is naloxone. And, and that is, I think that's been the good thing about this. Can you talk a little bit about the, duration of the initial prescription and how that relates to the potential long term uh, substance use disorder or chronic opioid therapy yeah,
3: i mean it, it is pretty simple equation right you know the 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 more you use the more risk of substance use disorder so there is no mystery there the more <laughs> the more you use the higher the dose the higher the risk of substance use disorder that's a very simple formulation so the three day use so have have any one of you tried a, any opioid?
1: Only recreationally. <laughs> Stuart's on them
0: right
3: now. So if you look at the opioid, you know, the current surgical literature that is coming out, you know, 70, 80% of the opioids that is prescribed stay at home unused. So most people cannot tolerate opioids for more than one or two days. They just stop it. So the, in, in, for, for most procedures, in you know, simple procedures, there is no point in giving them more than three days. It's just a waste of prescription. So most people, you know, don't use it. Even people who use it can use it only one or two days. So it is a good practice to, if it's a small procedure, if it's for three days, and if it's a larger procedure, if it's for seven days.
0: There was just an article in JAMA uh, in September 2017 that it was called Defining the Optimal Length of Opioid Pain Medication Prescription After Common Surgical Procedures. And basically, depending on the procedures, I think MSK procedures required some of the longer duration of opioids. uh, The gynecologic surgeries were in the intermediate and then the lower end was your simple appendectomies. And it was ranging four to 15 days. And the longer, as you already said, the longer people were on opioids, the more likely they'd still be using them at a year, especially if they filled a a second prescription for them after surgery.
3: Yeah, this is is very simple science. So most people have to understand if you give a prescription to an opioid-naive patient, around 80% cannot tolerate it.
0: So let's go to this case, this, this gentleman that you saw. So first, let's take the instance that you saw him in clinic. You, you, you've, you've done your spiel. You've counseled him because of your history. You're going to be at risk over that month. How often are you going to see him? How often are you going to drug test him? Let's give our, some practical pearls for what our audience should do if they were seeing this gentleman and how they could safely guide him through this period.
3: So you have to make an assessment of, of this patient. There are no you know rules for this game. So you have to make an assessment uh, uh, for this uh, uh, patient, you know how safe do you feel about this this guy being on opioid right? So so typically, I really don't test you know if you're really concerned, you can test it every week. if you if you degree if severity is every week urine talks. So that, uh, uh, but you already know about him, whether he's relapsing. He has been, you know, sober for two, two years, I think, you know, from the history. So it is unlikely that, you know, if you have tested him for two years and he's, you know, he's shown sobriety, it is very unlikely that he will, you know, uh, he will show any problems at this point. So my thing is that I wouldn't get in, in such a short use. You know, it is a very mm-hmm. short use. I would, and it, there's a clear etiology of you know the hip being broken, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think you know you should worry too much about diversion or you know other substance okay. use or things like that. So this is just a medical issue.
0: So you might give him two weeks or one month supply, yeah. and yeah, okay. What about tramadol? Can we use tramadol?
3: Yeah, I mean, start with the smallest one. Try tramadol first. And if a tramadol doesn't work, you know, go for hydrocodone or oxycodone. And you know, I don't think in this patient with a short exposure like this, I would not use long-acting opioids at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And Paul, you had sent me some articles about the hospital uh, hospitalized patients with this. Uh, did you want to Did you want to comment on that or ask any questions? Like, say, this guy was coming into the hospital in this situation.
2: No, I. I don't think I have a specific question. I mean, I think the article I sent uh, in particular was the one from the Journal of General Internal Medicine from I think a few months ago that just demonstrated nothing that we didn't know already. Whereas if you discharge an opioid naive patient on opiates, they're more likely to end up on long-term chronic narcotics than, than patients who are not discharged on opiates. So it's just another article sort of uh, elucidating the risk of the potential risks in prescribing narcotics.
4: So a lot of studies have come out that look at the likelihood of long-term receipt of opiates. And I just want to caution that long-term receipt of opiates does not itself represent a diagnosable addiction disorder. Uh, so uh, what on the one hand, long-term receipt is most assuredly associated with some form of dependence, even if that long-term receipt is at low dose. But the percentage of people who receive opioids long-term who would then qualify for a new onset Substance use disorder diagnosable by compulsive use despite harm in their life is likely to be low, probably less than 10% on average, maybe more like less than 5%, albeit higher if you're dealing with younger adults. Does that distinction make sense? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so these patients, I mean, they're they're coming into the hospital. It sounds like the the main thing we can do with this information, knowing that the longer we prescribe, the more risk there is, and the more we prescribe, the more risk we're generating, is to really counsel the patients and come at it from this kind of shared decision making. You're you're advocating for them, you're you're understanding their pain. You're not making them feel uh stigmatized because they need narcotics, which sometimes people do. That's kind of what I'm getting from that. Stefan, is this am I on the right track here?
4: i I think the question of what is the best treatment for an individual's long term chronic pain winds up being an empiric question because for every possible intervention, the efficacy is modest at best, and there typically is a paucity of long term data regardless of whether it's a medication or not a medication and so um, I t- try to keep expectations relatively low with an eye on function and very open and honest that I'm trying to think about risk of medications, but I'm not necessarily ruling them
3: out. I have to pick a kubel with that. This whole idea that opioid is not effective is, to me, is a whole lot of crap, (laughs) right? Opioid is the best pain medication available to us right now. There is none better than that. And there's a particular reason for that. So we look at pain reduction as just analgesia. Pain reduction also involves, uh, the pain relief also involves analgesia, uh, emotional distress reduction, and relief, which is a separate phenomenon. So the pain, analgesia is mostly mediated through the pain pathways, emotional distress reduction through emotional pathways, and the relief is actually mediated through reward pathways, right? So the 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 NSAID acts only on one, this analgesic pathway, whereas morphine acts on these three pathways.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: So it is a perfect pain medication. So it's a boon and the curse of the opioid because it has got analgesia, substantial uh, uh, emotional uh, uh, distress reduction, analgesia, and an effect on reward pathways. That's the boon and the curse. Because of Mm -hmm. its simultaneous effect on the reward pathways, there's a higher risk of dependence.
0: I wanted to ask for this patient if, let's say, now we're at the point where le- maybe this patient admits that he's actually been using uh, narcotics off the street and he's he's actually uh, addicted to narcotics or has a substance use disorder. And let's say we'll take the surgery out of the equation. So he's been using them. He now wants you to help him get off of chronic narcotic medications. I, I wanted to talk about the options for tapering and correct me if I'm wrong, as I was reading it, there's about three options. You can just go straight abstinence where you just let the patient stop mm. the medication, maybe taper off and they just stop totally. You could do the partial agonists. Uh, you can use like buprenorphine or methadone. Are there other options? Uh, Stefan, I'll, I'll throw the question to you.
4: In this case, in this hypothetical, is he taking opioids every day? Uh, is he likely to have physiologic dependence?
0: Yes. Yes. We're saying okay. he has physiologic dependence and also has been kind of, he's, he was be, being prescribed opioids by you, but it, later he admits that he's actually been going beyond what you give him and buying sure. more on the streets when he runs out.
4: So maybe he's treating pain still, but he's also in a very high-risk situation, and it very well likely would co- you know, correspond to substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh on average, I would want him to look at a therapy like suboxone or methadone, and in a practical way, in my particular setting, getting him started on suboxone would be easier to do than going to a methadone clinic, uh, which of which there are just a few in my area and are quite inconvenient.
0: And suboxone being buprenorphine and naloxone, and that's the suboxone is the branded the branded formulation.
4: Yeah, so it's it's a. Uh, It's approved for physicians who possess a special waiver to prescribe that for the purpose of treatment of addiction, if that's what you've diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Now, if you actually haven't diagnosed addiction, but somehow still think that what this guy is just a very maladaptive pain patient, any doctor uh, can prescribe that same medicine as an off-label pain medicine.
0: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, AJ can give us, I think, a better exposition on you know the merits and downsides of that approach, but I would be pretty reluctant to start out with a simple taper to abstinence unless he tells me that he actually has done that before,
3: and it's it's turned out to be very helpful provided he had the right supports in him. okay so this is a phenomenon that we are seeing right now. If you have you know opioid use disorder, which is you know dependence uh, with problematic behaviors, if you have that. Pain is often a symptom of the dependence. So the treating the substance in opioid use disorder is actually the treatment of pain. So the dependence, biological dependence has, has got one drive to keep your opioid intake at a particular level, right? So it will change your expectancy, your behavior, your emotions to match, you know, to, 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 to elicit that, that supply. Mm-hmm. Give you that supply. So if you don't treat the dependence, you know it's a people call it the in the wrong term opioid substitution therapy, which is not the appropriate term for that. Methadone and buprenorphine are treatment of opioid dependence. So if you treat the dependence, you can expect the pain to come down mostly.
0: Stefan, when you put someone on suboxone in your clinic. Is the goal to eventually taper them off of Suboxone as well, or is that a lifelong therapy in some cases?
4: It's a lifelong therapy in many cases, and um, I should confess that I personally am not currently waivered to prescribe it for addiction, although I'm working on my waiver course. Okay. But uh, my when I, I have someone right upstairs from me, and usually the expectation is it's going to be long-term. But the patient themselves will often make a choice at a certain point where they feel their life is such that they might wish to come off. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't. You know, there's no data to suggest that suboxone, short term with a taper coming off, uh, is protective of the patient. Uh, and AJ, do you want to add to that?
3: Uh, so uh, two things. One in 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 standard run of the mill opioid use disorder. We know very clearly that discontinuation at one year it carries somewhere around eighty to ninety percent relapse rate. So we have tested it up to one year. You know what happens if you continue buprenorphine? B- yeah. So it, it it doesn't work. So up <laughs> wow. to one year, okay, it it really doesn't work, right? So in in specific to pain, you no know, prescription OUD. The PORT study looked at this. You know, you know they they took a bunch of patients. You know, gave them buprenorphine and and first tapered them off in a month, okay, uh, and it's like 90, 99, 96 percent ninety four percent relapse. So they took them again and put them on a twelve month bup twelve twelve week buprenorphine taper again huge failure rates. So. The tapering quickly in a year typically doesn't work. That doesn't mean it, it, it it's not always. It typically doesn't work in most opioid use disorder patients. Mm. So typically what I tell, you know, what, opio- what dip- addiction does is that we all have this rich, wide life, right? And addiction takes it and narrows it to one single purpose in the service of addiction. Your entire life spectrum narrows. So what I typically tell patients is that you treat dependence. Don't think about coming off for a little while. Reconstruct your life, right? And when your life is reconstructed and stable, we'll talk about that.
2: Well, I know one of the qualifications is to even prescribe Suboxone to actually get the DAX license is you have to, you have to sign, literally sign a paper saying that you have social support available in your practice to help with with addiction management. So I wonder, uh, what are there any additional resources that you use and how important is the role in sort of mental health services above and beyond just the drug-assisted therapy for, for opioid use
3: disorder? Here's the thing. If you think about treatment of addiction and opioid use disorder, there are two arms to it, right? One is the medication treatment. One is behavioral treatment. So most people... When they get the medication assist- medication treatment, they kind of modify their behavior because they already most people who come into your office are the guys who want to quit. Right? So they, they this medication treatment enables them to quit. So they don't really need much of a psychotherapy. There are about 20% of people who will require psychotherapy. It is it is the key to identify these people and have a resource to refer these people to, you know, when when if they need.
0: Stephan, I had a question about the risk of abstinence and some of the adverse outcomes that have been reported in the literature that just for our audience to be aware of what uh, some of the extreme cases, what, what these people go through.
4: So first of all, thinking about people who have known opioid use disorder, um, who are not making this choice to, you know, there are some who say, literally, I want to stop. I don't want medication. I want to go through a residential program, which doesn't have a ton of data for it, but those people might do fine in in, in some instances. But on average, when uh, I have a a patient in our clinic who's getting suboxone and they go off to some residential program and they stop it, what I'm worried about is that that patient is going to um, have a lower level of tolerance uh, for the time that they are abstinent. And then when they relapse, they're going to buy what's on the streets of my city and your city too, which is heroin laced with fentanyl, or a product that is fentanyl, which is extremely high potency, that's being sold under the name heroin. Mm. At that point, they're going to die. So, uh, you know, I look upon the medication that they're receiving, particularly if they're a high-risk patient, as protection against overdose from what's being sold on the streets.
3: So, it's a, you know, so there are two aspects that comes to this. One is, you know, what is the, what is the effect of stopping opioids? Uh, you know, is therapeutic opioids or you know drug use opioids? You know, abstinence in a drug use culture. So, therapeutic opioids, people think you know the the effect disappears after the first few days of withdrawals. That's not true. In 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 a proportion of people, they have what is called the protracted abstinence, meaning abstinence syndrome or protractal withdrawal syndrome, which can last for months to weeks, which makes them extremely vulnerable to adverse outcomes, suicides, violent, violent behavior. So if if a person is behaving abnormally after stopping opioids, you have to consider the diagnosis of protracted and withdrawals in that. Uh, I think it's in March. We, we wrote an editorial uh, David Phile uh, I and Bob Rosenhack wrote an editorial in BMJ that in in opioid use disorder, there is a golden month. so the, the, there's a golden month of first first four weeks of treatment when the mortality risk is high, that is when 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 their mortality risk is high, and the first four weeks of discontinuation. So you should have to special attention to these th- these things. So, Abstinence, induced abstinence, is a high-risk venture. You, you, you know, anybody who says otherwise is probably wrong.
4: Can we, can we clarify one piece there? I spoke about overdose risk in the patient who I think of as my addiction patient. And I think that what AJ has said applies to those people, but it also yeah. applies to another group. It applies to patients who have been on long-term opioids for chronic pain some of whom would have something like a complex form of dependence, many of whom now are being tapered or taken off of opioids in the name of their safety. And what we're saying is that that is an unproven proposition that they're being made safer, particularly if it's being done involuntarily, and that, in fact, we are observing, at least anecdotally, considerable risk for that exact population. Uh, I have a piece in uh, thehill.com describing a patient who would never really shown signs of addiction per se, but it had been on high-dose opioids for many years, where uh, the discontinuation of opioids uh, from high-dose, eventually, to 10% of his original dose resulted in his withdrawal to bed, his not taking his medicines for other medical problems, and the loss of his transplanted kidney. And all of that opioid change was undertaken in the service of his safety. Uh, and as a result, he can have another transplant or he can go on dialysis for all the protection that his doctors thought they were giving him. So we're saying when you stop opioids in the name of making someone safer, even when you were originally, they were not prescribed for addiction, but for pain, you need to be thoughtful that there is real risk involved.
3: So I will I'll give you a perspective, I'll give you a case to give you a perspective how this, this protracted withdrawal syndrome is exhibiting. So I had a patient... Uh, who had uh, was on 180 milligrams of morphine per day. And suddenly, they just stopped for chronic pain. He was on it for 20, 30 years, and they just stopped. They just tapered off. Not, not stopped in the sense that tapered off. So since then, for the past one year, he has been in the hospital 15 times for chest pain, hypertension, crisis. Nothing else. Chest pain hypertensive crisis every single time they give him nitro they work him up for ekg they give him you know antihypertensives. nothing works then they give him a little bit morphine for his pain and his everything comes under control <laughs> hmm. they, then they send him home without any, any, any opioids
0: and recycle right? the same symptoms
3: uh again the, again wow yeah. so in, in in pain patients if there is hypertensive crisis it would, it would make much sense at this period to ask whether they have been tapered of opioids. Yes. So there are symptoms like that that is coming along the way, you know, with clinical uh, uh, pictures that is emerging with this op- whole opioid taper.
4: And, and I, when I attend on the wards, the same business, when we have a mystery case, I say, please review the last three months of the chart to find whether opioids were discontinued recently. And when it's a mystery case, at least half the time, I'm right in asking for
0: that. Oh, I I can't wait to look like a genius on rounds for for suggesting that. Huh. Uh, yeah, despite my previous comment about the book multipliers. Okay, so I <laughs> I, I think we have. Uh, I'm being hypocritical, uh, and I have audio. Yeah. Anyway. I, I think we should start to wrap up for interest of time, but luckily we're going to have you gentlemen back next month to kind of continue this discussion. And I, I kind of see next time going as being like a random pearls in addiction medicine. We can kind of explore some other, other issues related to uh, substance use disorders and other substances. Stuart, do we have any questions from Facebook that you think could be quickly answered?
1: We, we just have, have the one, and it was uh, specifically about what are some of your thoughts of the ethical considerations of naloxone auto injectors available without a prescription?
4: In my state, there is a statewide order that comes from the medical officer for the state that essentially covers every potential patient in the state. You can walk into any pharmacy, Request naloxone and get it, and that's from the very not liberal state of Alabama. Uh, there's no evidence that having access to naloxone leads someone to develop an addiction. Uh, it's unpleasant to take naloxone uh, uh, if you're you know receiving opioids, sure uh, so I think it's basically a reasonable thing to do
3: so there is a misconception about overdose people mostly think about overdose as you take excessive amounts of medication hence the term overdose most people if you do the autopsy studies and you know the blood level studies on heroin overdoses they typically have lower than normal you know what is called therapeutic level of heroin Typically, what causes death, it's true. This is, this, is, this, is, this is playing out in the fentanyl overdose death, too, if you look at the literature, read carefully. But this is uh, fentanyl is a strong, pure, pure drug? No. Most overdoses are due to polysubstance use. Mm. You have to really understand that. So, if polypharmacy is a big issue along with you know, prescribed opioids... So, in, in, in heroin use, most uh, overdoses are po- polysubstance use, and typically they have psychiatric disorders and comorbid medical disorders. So, these are the people who, who die from heroin dose. In opioid prescribed opioids, I get asked this all the time, about whom should we prescribe naloxone to, right? That's a fairly question. We have the dose dose description but you know if you end up giving everybody about 50 above 50 you know it just it just doesn't make sense right so i typically follow the the last four categories i said people with prior substance use history people with mental health disorders people with multiple comorbidities and people with polypharmacy these are my high-risk patients so they get naloxone
0: well, our internal medicine patients check most of those boxes. Co- comorbidities; a lot of them have mental health issues. Of course, polypharmacy. And so, you know, even if they don't have prior substance abuse, they they are at risk. So that's great. That's that's really helpful. Uh, at this point, can I ask, Stefan? Could you give us your take home points, and then AJ, I'll ask you for yours next.
4: Yeah, the decisions we make with patients when it comes to opioids should involve just a decision about understanding who they are, and then calibrating risk against benefit. Uh, I am reluctant to embrace absolute rules in this area. When I read the CDC guideline, I actually think, as written, it adopts that perspective. Unfortunately, many physicians today will come under pressures that seek to essentially weaponize that guideline into a set of absolute rules. Legislators may do it. Pharmacies may do it. Insurers may do it. Uh, But the guideline is written really talks a lot about assessing the risk, the benefit, and the observable harms to your patient. And that's where I land.
3: That pretty much sums up my advice, too. (laughs) So, I mean, so one thing you have to realize is that, you know, we don't know a lot about opioids. We don't know a lot about dependence. So when I, I hear physicians talk about this as certainty, that stopping opioids you know it will improve risk it is, it doesn't work out that way all the time so you just have to you have to have some humility in recognizing that we don't know everything about opioids in some certain people it can be helpful it's a it's a terrible drug it's it's a poorly tolerated drug but it has its role
0: I'm going to encourage our audience. I have an ask for the audiences is find out who in your practice or who in your area has, has, um, can help put people on these medications like suboxone, uh, most internal medicine patients. I think suboxone is probably a better choice with the, uh, you know, the drug-drug interactions with methadone. But I, I think that that's something that I certainly need to be doing um, right now because I just moved locations and I, I need to find out because uh, this conversation for me, I'm, I'm re- you guys are really highlighting the point that just stopping tapering people off these medications has a fair amount of risk uh, and and it's probably not the right thing to do for most patients. So I think I hope the audience heard that message and and can kind of seek out resources to do this more responsibly and more I don't know humanely or safely whatever the right word is.
3: So tapering has its role. Okay. I don't, I don't want to deny that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. but be cognizant that it is associated with risk. It's not a risk-free yeah. risk-free venture. If the patient's wa- even if the patient wants to taper, right? You should be aware that it could be it could become a very risky venture and be prepared for that.
0: Yeah. Gentlemen, this is this is awesome. Right. I learned a lot. And uh and we we look forward to talking with you again next month uh, about some some related issues but some some different areas that that I also need a lot of teaching on. So thank you.
3: A pleasure thank you for having us. Thank
4: you so and I'll much. Use, I'll time. use this computer next time. Yeah, it works. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, bye bye.
0: Bye-bye. Bye, Bye. Bye, gentlemen. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing Mm -hmm. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with Lake City articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up for our weekly mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food, where you'll get our expertly done show notes.
1: Are you ever going to update this outro?
0: No, I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. So to do that, we want your input. So please send an email to Curbsiders at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham.
2: And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night.
1: Oh, hi, Paul. Hi, Paul.
2: (laughs) Classic bit.